I'm Jeff Cohen. Leah Aroni spent her formative years living as a Jew in the Soviet Union under the harsh reality of communism. But her story doesn't end there, as her family managed to forge a better life, and she also found her way to Orthodox Judaism along the way. Leah is here today to share her story, so let's get started. Leah, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I was thinking in preparing for this interview, the fact that we're going to be talking about Russia and Judaism, given what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, I have a feeling you're going to have a very interesting perspective on everything going on in the world today. Oh, do I ever? For the past two years, this is actually what I'm doing, uh, dawn to dusk. So I definitely have a lot to say on that subject. Okay, and we'll get into all of that over the course of the interview. Let's start by getting to know you a little bit. How much of your childhood was in the Soviet Union? I lived in the Soviet Union until I was about 12 or 13. Um, I was born there in Moscow to a family that ended up in Russia from all over Eastern Europe. Yeah, I remember it pretty vividly. It's been very formative. And, you know, then you do like 30 years of therapy to, <laughs> to unravel everything that happened to you under those circumstances, because it was definitely a challenging childhood. It's not something that you consider to be challenging when you go through it, but then when you come out to the free world and people hear your childhood stories and their you know, jaws drop on the on the floor, you understand that it's not normative by Western standards. And then you have to adjust. So there's a lot of adjustment that has to happen. And I feel very privileged because it has really steeled me for different circumstances and different challenges along the way. But it's definitely not easy being a child in the Soviet Union under communism. It's not easy to be a person under communism. And it's extremely challenging to be a Jew under communism. Maybe you can give an example or two of what it was like trying to practice Judaism under communism. What could you do? What couldn't you do? Did you have to hide things? What was it really like for you that you can remember as a child? The overwhelming majority of Jews who lived under communism didn't practice anything or practiced very minor traditions. Just the fact that you were a Jew and that you identified as such was already a huge challenge. And we Jews sort of learned to recognize each other and to see each other on the street. And uh, the first question you had in your mind when you came across a new person was, is this person Jewish? And what does that mean? And do I need to help them more? Will they help me more? What the relationship will be like? So my family was actually, let's say, more traditional. That's very limited in, in terms of what we could do. But let's say we had a mezuzah inside our doorpost, which I think were maybe one of a handful of families in Russia who had a mezuzah. Our family had a seder on Pesach the entire extended family. And we would have matzah on Pesach, which we would eat together with bread, but we had matzah in the house. My mother had these vestiges of religious observances and laws, which didn't know what they were. So they seemed like superstitions at the time. And only after I became observant and I learned about halacha and Jewish law did I understand that these little superstitions were actually leftover traditions. So for example, if we would go to the cemetery, she would make everybody wash their hands. You could not walk out of the cemetery without washing your hands. And I thought it was a superstition, you know, like, what's the deal? It's only afterwards that I learned that when you leave the cemetery, you're supposed to wash your hands because anything that's connected to death in Judaism is considered to be impure. It's a halacha, it's a Jewish law. But my mother didn't know that, she just knew from tradition that you have to do that. And that's just one example of many other things, like you couldn't walk around the house barefoot. 
And she would say, you know, when I die, you'll walk around barefoot. So that's something that's a leftover from Shiva. When people sit Shiva for a dead relative, they don't wear shoes. So that was, uh, in terms of religion, these are the kind of things we did. We knew about Shabbat and I knew about kosher. It was something that I heard, but it's not something that we could practice. One thing we did have in the house were Jewish books. That was actually because my grandfather went to France to visit relatives in the 1980s, and he really risked his life, literally, to bring in a Siddur and a Tehillim of Psalms. And he really risked his life to bring those into Russia. And we had those in the house. We couldn't read because none of us could read Hebrew besides my grandfather. But having those books for me was really formative because it showed me the certain values that it's really worth taking a risk for. And I still have the Siddur. Almost 40 years later, I still have it in the house. These things that you mentioned, having Jewish books, having a mezuzah, having a Seder with your extended family, was there a discussion about this idea that you could do these things, but it had to somewhat be done in secret, like there was a risk of getting caught and there would be consequences if somebody found out what you were doing? Were those discussions actually going on in your family as it relates to communism? It's something that I knew intuitively I think from literally the moment I was born. My family has a joke that my mother and I went on vacation when I was two years old, and she had to go and get milk for me, and apparently she left me with the people in the next room just for those two minutes. And I was very verbal already at that age, so they asked me all kind of questions about my family, and they saw that I knew things, but I wouldn't say anything. So this family became close friends of ours, and they would call me a spy. That was my nickname for years because I wouldn't divulge any information. So for me personally, you grow up in an atmosphere that you know that everything you say, everything you do, every move is being watched and being listened to and that walls have ears and there is the life you live outside, which is very communist and, you know, and you have to say all the right things and do all the right moves. And then there is reality that you sort of live in the house and you talk in the house. And my family had a lot of friends. My parents had a lot of friends who were opposed to the regime. And they would have these conversations in the house, but you could never say anything that was said in the house, outside the house. Now, you said your entire childhood wasn't spent in the Soviet Union. So what kind of precipitated the idea that your family was going to move? How did you make it happen? And where did you go? So actually, my mother's family wanted to leave Russia even before in the late 1970s. And then my grandmother got uh, sick, and that was the end of their planned move to the United States. Other parts of the family actually left at the time. Then from 1970s to 1989, it was not possible to leave the Soviet Union anymore. So my mother really waited for an opportunity to leave. And as soon as the Soviets made it possible to leave the country, I think within three months, we were out of that door. So where did you go specifically within the United States and take us inside your life once you got there? So in 1988, in the late 1988, we left Russia. There was this whole uh, path you had to go through Europe until they processed you. And we came to New York in 1989. We settled in Riverdale in the Bronx. It's pretty hard being an immigrant child (laughs) in New York uh, during the time. It was very challenging for my family. My parents got divorced. You know, in Russia, we were very well off economically, as well as you could be in Russia. My father had this side business that he was able to earn money, and we lived really well. And then you come to New York, you come to the States, and my parents didn't speak the language. They weren't part of the culture. They didn't have the right experience. So it was very, you know, downhill from there. 
like I went out to work when I was 13, walking dogs and cleaning people's houses and babysitting and whatever needed to happen for me to be able to bring money into the house just to have a life. But for my parents, my education was very important. So they found this private school in New York they sent me to. I didn't like it one little bit. Actually, at that time, just before we left Russia, um, what happened was that as the gates opened a little bit, an American organization brought in 5,000 Sidurim and Chumashim, you know, the five, the five books of Torah and prayer books. They were half in Hebrew and half in this old church Russian, um, apparently photocopied from the last Sidur that was published you know, before, the, before the revolution. Uh, but it was, you know, Russian enough for me to understand what it was. And I got a set like this, and that was the start of my Jewish education. Just going through the Sidur, learning the laws that are printed in it, reading the Torah portion. And that sort of got me on the path of wanting to learn more about Judaism. So when we came to New York, I walked into the local branch of the New York Public Library and polished off the entire shelf of Jewish books. You know, everything that had in Judaism I read. And then, you know, one of my um, housework, you know, ex expeditions, I went into this house to, you know, to help this lady clean up for Pesach. And she taught me alphabet. I think it was like 13 or 14 by then. She taught me the alphabet. And then I decided that I wanted Jewish education. So I opened literally the yellow pages under Jewish schools, on the yeshivot, you know, stuck my finger at the first school that, you know, called my name, got on the bus, knocked on the principal's door and said, hi, I want to go into your school. He's like, where'd you come from? Where's your mother? And I said, well, who cares about my mother? I want, to, I want Jewish education. And he said, um, okay. And he accepted me and there were a bunch of other kids that came out of Russia at the time. So they actually set up a program to fast track us on Jewish education. I was in 10th grade when I walked into that school speaking zero Hebrew and never cracking a book in Hebrew before. And um, I'm very grateful for that to the Frisch School of Paramus and Robert Meyer, who was the principal, because by the time I finished 12th grade, I could go to a seminary in Israel. Wow, that is a very fast transition. If you're saying 10th grade, you couldn't speak a word of Hebrew, and by the time you graduated, you were off to seminary. I just want to backtrack on a couple of things you said. First off, one quick question. You said your parents did not really speak the language. Had you learned English somewhere along the way in your childhood that you were able to speak it when you got to New York? Yes. So my parents actually sent me to this very exclusive school in Russia, in Moscow, that many of the government officials send their kids to. My uncle was an architect who was on the team that built that school. So we had the right connections. And in Russia, everything worked through connections. So I learned English from second grade on and at a very high level. So when we came to New York, I, I spoke English. I'm thinking about how you said your mother really wanted to get out of the Soviet Union to have a better life. You hear this story all the time, come to the United States for a better life. But the way you've described it, your parents' life didn't seem to get better by coming here. Did you end up having conversations with them about what they thought it would mean to come here and, and the reality of what happened when they actually moved? It's actually something that I've been thinking a lot in my work with um, all immigrants in Israel. But, you know, as I think back and I look back, Practically every family that I know that came out of the Soviet Union and immigrated to the United States, within a few years, they were the same economic level that they were back in Russia. For example, one of my uncles is a dentist. He was pretty well off in Russia. When they came to America, they literally had nothing to eat. No, the fridge was bare. Through a lot of work and a huge amount of grit, he 
he passed the, you know, the board and he became a, a dentist in, in America. Since then, he's okay. So most of the families that I know that came to the United States, um, practically all of them came back to the same economic reality that they lived earlier. But the transition, the five years in between are very, very hard. And it's only thanks to good people along the way that help you and that there for you and support you in whatever ways that uh, you can make it. So now going into your experience at Frisch, you said you started there in 10th grade, but you're now in a school with many kids who started this back in kindergarten. So they've been living and breathing the yeshiva system, you know, for a decade or more. What was that really like for you those few years? Clearly, you made some amazing progress that you were able to get yourself to a point of wanting to go to seminary. But what did it feel like for you being in that school at that time with all these kids who maybe had it from the beginning? I think it was a huge mentality gap just in terms of, you know, the culture and getting used to the culture and, and being an outsider and not understanding many of the cultural codes and just really not understanding the context very often. So that was part of the experience. I had some other friends who were also Russian, so we sort of stuck together. But really, I just wanted to learn the Jewish subjects, the things that you know, my classmates have been learning for 10 years that I just was hearing for the first time. And also trying to learn everything else, like algebra and chemistry and physics uh, in English. So <laughs> I had my hands full. I think I got a very good education and I'm very grateful for it, but it was very challenging. You know, it was also everything that you go through as a teen. You know, I look at my teens, I have a bunch of kids in my house and, you know, I look what it's like for them to be a teen. It, it's very, very different. I, you know, I didn't have the privilege of being a teen. I didn't have the privilege of uh, looking for my identity at the time. I was just trying to survive. And this is really an experience of many kids who immigrated at this age. And as I think about this three-year period that you're at Frisch, where are you holding or growing religiously? Because you're getting a Jewish education, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to also decide you want to live as an Orthodox Jew. You might just be trying to get an education. So were you also growing religiously, or does that come later in your story? Oh, no, actually, that comes before my story, because even before I went to Frisch, when I was still in that uh, non-Jewish private school in uh, New York, so I was already eating kosher, keeping Shabbat, wearing skirts. You know, it was like you learn a new thing, and then you do it, and you learn a new thing, and you, then you do it. And also somebody at the time introduced me to NCSY. Actually, at the time, there was no NCSY chapter in Riverdale. And together with some other kids, I started the NCSY chapter in, in Riverdale at the time and uh, going to Shabbatunim. So it was a very um, rich experience. I really didn't see any point in learning things not to do them. It's not an education for education's sake. It's something that you want to live, and then you just need to understand how you live this lifestyle. And I'm actually very grateful to one of my teachers, Rabbi Harkstark, that I would corner, I think, every single morning for like an hour was all the questions I had from all the books I've read and like, what is this and what is that? And how do you do that? And what, how does this connect to this? And then looking back at it as an adult, I don't know how he had the patience for me every single morning, but apparently he did. And that was a very big part of my um, education, becoming who I am. It's actually pretty remarkable if you're saying that becoming an Orthodox Jew happened before you got to Frisch, which, which basically means that without going to a yeshiva day school for even a day in your life, you got yourself all the way to Orthodox Judaism just by, I guess, wanting it, desiring it, and accumulating knowledge without having the infrastructure of a school that could just hand it to you. Right. I think when I started figuring this lifestyle out, I wanted to go to a synagogue. I went to the one of the synagogues in Riverdale, but the entire service was in Hebrew, so I had no clue what was flying Literally, I think the first Megillah reading I heard, 
I could find the Esther in English in the translation, and I would hear you know them saying Esther or Mordechai, like those names, and that's how I went through the translation, and that's how I held where they were. So what I understood at that time was that um, going to an Orthodox synagogue was not sustainable for me just because I didn't understand what was going on. So I went to the local reform synagogue while I understood that this is not what I want and this is not the lifestyle I want. And I actually had a funny experience that year on Shavuot, you know, in the non-Jewish world, they don't know what Shavuot is. So I didn't want to go to school on Shavuot. So I asked the reform rabbi to give me a letter that I could skip school. I didn't mean him to give it to me on the spot during the holiday, but that's what he did. He walked into his office on Shavuot and wrote a letter on his computer that I shouldn't go to school on Shavuot. So um, that sort of told me that this is not the place for me. So for about a year until I, you know, until I found my bearings, I would go to a reform synagogue um, just to be in a synagogue where I could follow the service. And once I picked up enough Hebrew and understood the structure of the prayers, I found an Orthodox synagogue I could go to. Continuing your story, you, you graduate from Frisch and you reference going to seminary. So how did you get to that decision? Were your parents supportive of you going to Israel? And what was the plan post high school beyond seminary? Were you thinking you would go to college? What do you think would happen next in your life? So I went to NCSY and also went to Bnei Akiva. There was a lot of, you know, different experiences there, but I really had to catch up. So in Bnei Akiva, I met somebody who introduced me to the Torah of Rabbi Cook, Rabbi Cook. And so during my 12th grade, I've read some of those ideas. And it was very clear to me that I wanted to go to Israel and live in Israel. It was actually something that was clear to me even before, because when we left Russia, there was a stop in Vienna and then in Italy, and then you got to the United States. So when you got off the plane from Russia in Vienna, there was a Jewish agency official that would meet you because officially you were going from Russia to Israel. And he would ask every family, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Israel or somewhere else? And I remember as getting off the plane and my mother telling me, and I was 13, she was telling me, I know you want to go to Israel, but we're going to America, so you shut up. So um, <laughs> so I really, I think at a very early age, I understood that Jewish history and Jewish future is really in Israel. And being exposed to Robert Cook's ideas only sort of helped me solidify that understanding. Also, it's a mitzvah to live in Israel. It's a mitzvah in the Torah to live in Israel. So, you know, in me, for me, uh, at the age of 17, it was very black or white. You know, you eat kosher, you, that's a mitzvah. Living in Israel is a mitzvah. So you pick up and you go to Israel. So, yeah, two weeks after graduating from high school, I got on a plane to Israel. My parents made me sign a paper that I would come back to America after Israel and go to college. So I had a ticket back. I came back for one semester in Stern College. Stern is amazing, but for me, I hated every second of it because I wanted to be back in Israel. So I went to Israel, came back for a semester at Stern, did my time, and then came back to Israel forever. How did you convince your parents after you signed that letter that you would come back? So I guess you fulfilled that obligation because you did come back. You just never said how long you would come back for. So how do they feel about this decision to go back to Israel again? And it seems like you want to set up your life there now. Let's just say my mother was not very supportive. She did not like that idea. But by that time, I was very independent. During this tradition and during these years of my um, high school years, let's just say I wasn't supervised too much. And I really learned to be on my own. And, and I'm also the only child. So um, I was very much on my own, doing things my own way, sort of forging my own identity a little bit. And so there was no question for me that I would be going to Israel. It's not a uh, decision that anybody could dissuade me from. So what happens when you go back? Do you 
enroll in college to get a degree? Like, what's your plan? And, and who do you know there? Like, where do you land? And how do you start your life there? So I actually found this group of American college students that went to volunteer in Israel for the summer. And I uh, signed up for this program. So I had a place to land to. This volunteering program was for the summer. And I did sign up for seminary. I went to Bravender's. After about three weeks in Bravender's, I understood that I wanted to be with Israelis and not with Americans. So I switched to the Israeli program, which looking back was crazy. I didn't speak Hebrew. And, you know, if it was challenging uh, studying Jewish texts with American kids who had, you know, 10 years of Jewish education before me. So doing this with Israelis now who have 12 years of, you know, Israeli level Jewish education was even more challenging. But, you know, I survived and I've really learned a huge deal from them. And I also learned Hebrew by being with Israelis in the same dorm. So what was motivating that switch from Americans to Israelis? Was it that you wanted like a more authentic experience with people who were like born and raised there? And, you know, there's no judgment involved here, but I saw the young women in this American dorm going around speaking English, listening to American songs, hanging out with one another and just not being part of Israel, not being connected to the experience of Israel so much. And, you know, I didn't come to Israel to be an American. I really wanted to... um, get absorbed in the culture. And the way to do it was to be with Israelis. And so does this lead to dating and finding a special someone who is an Israeli? Like now you've kind of opened up another world because you're really enmeshed in this culture as opposed to staying with the Americans. I would think if you hung around with the Americans, you might have met someone and then come back if that's where they were from. But now you're really hanging out with just the Israelis and you're really part of their culture. So do you start dating within that world? So it's interesting because I did go to an Israeli matchmaker and she set me up with two American boys, you know, one American boy and another American boy that were planning on staying in Israel, you know, they were in Israeli institutions, but that just wasn't a good match for whatever reason. And then very accidentally, I met my husband who is not just Israeli, he's Yemenite. He's like, as Israeli as you can be and, you know, as a big joke because I flunked Hebrew in high school and he flunked English in high school. But we still found a common language somehow. And uh, yeah, I'm married to an Israeli who's never been out of Israel, whose entire family is very, very Israeli, very traditional, very, you know, entrenched. But I think in the long run, it really enabled me to be part of this culture and and see different facets of it and then have a common language which was also within Israel. Israel is very eclectic. And there are many different communities and cultures here. And so being exposed to different communities and cultures has really enabled me and given me a common language with a lot of different people here. And your husband was raised religious or he also became religious like you did? No, my husband was raised religious. So where does your life start together? So you, you found this match and it's an interesting match given your background and all these different places you've lived and he's only been in Israel where does your life start? Where do you settle? Do you begin you know, to grow a family at that point? What happens next? So we actually met when I was in seminary, and we wanted to get married, but I had this letter. I had to go back to America. So we had this unofficial engagement for a few months, for almost a year, actually. I went back to America. I went to Stern, just taking whatever courses I wanted because I had no plans of staying. And then after that semester, I came back to Israel, and we got married. And our first place uh, was in the in a little town, little village of 13 families near Hebron. Um, my husband was in yeshiva at the time, and he wanted to go learn Torah in Hebron. And um, I signed up for college at Michlala. And my husband told me, English teachers are really needed in Israel, and it will be an easy education for you and an easy job for you to get. And I wanted to go into education having all these amazing role models at Frisch, who are these amazing educators. 
So I sort of thought I would be a teacher. And uh, so I went for a degree in education. And my husband convinced me to get a degree as an English teacher. So our first place of residence was in this tiny village of Malechever, 13 families. No, there's not even like a story, no grocery. If, you know, if you're out of milk, you're out of milk. If you're out of bread, you're out of bread. So my husband would go to Yeshiva and there was this old beaten up minivan that would take all these young women to Jerusalem to college in the morning. They call it Malay Gerber, because I think the, like the Malay Gerber, because I think the average age of, of a family there was 20. And most of the women, they were college students like me. So once a day, there would be this little minivan to go to college in the morning and bring us back in the evening. It lasted exactly for one year. There was like too much to take. And then we moved to Beitel, which is closer to Jerusalem. And we lived there for a few years until we moved to our current uh, community of Kohav Yaakov, which is not far from Jerusalem. And you start a family there. And what happens career-wise as kids enter the picture? Yeah, so we had one daughter first and then you know other children afterwards. It was very quick for me to understand that being a teacher in Israel was not something I could handle. You know, Israeli kids are very lively. And after about a year and a half in the Israeli educational system, or two years, I understood that this is not the career I want for myself if I want to stay sane. I was very lucky because a position opened up for chief of staff for the mayor of Betel. I think they had six or seven people who signed up for this, you know, who applied for this position. And they decided to do a psychodynamic test on all the candidates. Apparently, I was the only person who was willing to take this test. So by default, I was chosen for the job. And I did that for three years. By that time, I already had two kids. And I sort of couldn't understand how you work nine to five and you raise a family. So I thought, okay, I'm going to open my own business and start working from home and I looked around, what can I do, you know, that would be productive and I could do from home and speaking three languages, opening a translation agency sounded like a good idea. So I went back to college for a translation course and at the age of 25, I opened a translation business. Wow, it's really jumping out to me how much of like a go-getter you are, like the way you describe being an only child and not having like so much supervision over you that you could really do what you want. You were very independent and really made a lot of important decisions that you took control of that like pushed your life forward in a positive way. It's really remarkable given where your story begins. Do you ever think back to how you found this like inner fortitude to make these moves and keep your life going forward? See, when you're in that situation, you don't really see that as anything remarkable. You sort of, you know, you look at a problem and you say, okay, there's a problem here and let's solve it. Let's look around what what possible solutions there are. But I think because of my upbringing and because I lived this double life in this former Soviet Union with, first of all, you always have to be on the lookout. And the situations are very fluid. When I was nine, I was taught by my mother, who was a lawyer in this former Soviet Union, what I would need to do if I'm ever taken to a KGB investigation. So you sort of learn to prepare for different eventualities and for different situations. And I know it may sound tough, but it's not something that I felt traumatic at the time. It was just, you know, part of the tools you need to have in that kind of culture. And the other thing is because you learn to live in a situation where you know that there is sort of the outside truth and the internal truth, so you always look at situations from different perspectives. And you understand that every situation has different meanings and different layers and realities. So you never really take things for granted this kind of outlook sort of allows me to look deeper into situations and to see the possible where other people don't see it. And I know from learning about your background that the 
translation work you were doing was not the final stop in your career that you transitioned again. So how did you go from doing that to what you're doing now? So after having this translation agency for about 15 years, and it started out by me translating. And when you translate, what happens is that you have to learn many different areas of interest. So you'll learn about things you never knew before. It's almost like an education because one day you need to translate about insurance and the next day you need to translate about oil drilling. And you sort of learn different things along the way. And then people started saying, okay, well, do you translate French and Hungarian and Japanese? And so within a few years, I had a database of about 300 freelance translators in all kinds of languages. And I wasn't doing translation anymore. I was doing more project management and marketing. And at a certain point, I understood that I like marketing and business building much more than the actual translation. And I started working with a business consultant, and I really loved what he was doing, the tools that he was bringing. And in my business, I was sort of marketing, you know, by the seat of my pants. You think of things, and then you do them. There was never any science to, to the marketing. But all of a sudden, I realized that there is actually a science of marketing after 15 years in, of doing this. I realized that there's actually science to marketing. So, you know, just like I read that whole bookcase of books of on Judaism, I went out and I read a whole bookcase of books on business and marketing and management. I already had six kids by then. I went back to college for a degree in uh, organizational consulting and psychology. And I moved into coaching and business organizational consulting, which is what I do today. Well, wow, so what kind of person would be the right customer for you? Like who who's listening today would say, I'm in the kind of situation that I should reach out to Leah because I think she could help me. So I work with a few different kind of customers. First, the people in their, let's say, 30s to 50s who've sort of had a career and they understand that this is not what they want to be doing when they grow up. And, but they don't know what it is that they want to be doing when they grow up. And here I help people figure out, okay, what's your life mission? What's the thing that you love doing? You're amazing at bringing to people, but you have challenges in making it happen. And once people understand what that thing is, we help them build a business around it. So this is one type of customer I have, and people really make amazing changes and transitions. And it's a little bit of actually a lot of coaching work to understand who you are and what you want, to understand what are your challenges in getting there. And then the practical business building of how do you take this idea and turn it into a business that actually brings money. So that's what I do with individuals. And then I work with organizations and companies that have different issues inside the organization or company, whether it's management, organizational issues, HR problems, marketing. And it truly comes out to looking at the organization, seeing why things are not working the way they are. So just an example from a client I have right now, it's an it's a company that provides a certain product, but they, um, but they don't understand which industry they're in. They're looking at the product and they think that's what they're offering, but the product is just a byproduct. Really, their clients are looking for something else. So once we understood that they're actually in a different industry than the one they're thinking about, we renamed all the roles in the organization and created other approaches, other methodologies. And that made a very big difference in how they work and how they understand what they're doing. So it's once again, it's looking at the outside reality and the inside reality, seeing where the mismatch is and seeing how to close the gap. And that allows me to help people and help organizations really live up to their potential. And I, of course, want to give you an opportunity to share the best way that people can get in contact with you. 
how can they reach out to you? How can they either email you or was your website? How can they reach out to you if they want to work with you? Yeah, so people can reach out to me at Leah, L-E-A-H 25 at gmail.com. But actually, in the last two years, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, while I still do business consulting and organizational consulting, most of my work is really has been working in nonprofits and, and establishing a nonprofit and helping people you know, coming into Israel because of the war in Ukraine, and now most recently helping people affected by the war in Israel. Which is the perfect lead into the last question that I wanted to ask you, because you're in such a unique position with these two wars going on. Obviously, there's other situations around the world, but two that have been in the news a lot is what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and then what's going on with Israel and Hamas. And here you are in this unique position as someone who came from the former Soviet Union, also was living in Israel, and presumably you were there on October 7th for the horrific Hamas attack. I would just really be curious to your perspective on these two situations. When the war in Ukraine started, I sort of, you know, people didn't think it would happen, but I sort of have this gut feeling that it will happen. And I was in the Knesset 10 days before the war in a hearing of how the government of Israel is getting ready for this war. And it was very clear to me that the government is not getting ready and was not taking the steps necessary. So when the war started, it was a really all hands on deck a kind of effort by many organizations and many people to start helping. And I think on the third day of the war, I was in Ben-Gurion trying to send tons of food to Moldova for the refugees, never having done international shipping. It's something you sort of learn on the spot. So for the past two years, we have been very involved, and I actually established an organization called Our People. What we do is help people get to Israel and help them find a life here and also creating communities for Russian speakers because there are very few established, organized communities for Russian speakers, and they really need those. So that's what we have been doing. Having gathered all this experience of working with displaced individuals when the war started on October 7th on Simchat Torah, as soon as Simchat Torah was over and we knew people would be evacuated, I already saw the movie. I already knew like what it would be like for them to be in hotels because we were in hotels with the Ukrainians. And um, I reached out to social services in the several cities in the south. I've also reached out to the Ministry of Social Services in Israel, and they were totally at a loss. So once again, we understood that it would have to be the, you know, the nonprofits, the, just the people that would have to take care of this. I also reached out to some people I knew who were affected by the Gush Katif evacuation displacement, and I spoke to them to find out what their experiences were like in hotels for six, eight, ten months, and they told me. With all this understanding, we started developing programs to help people who were evacuated and displaced there. I think people don't realize that 200,000 internal refugees in Israel right now, and approximately 200,000 more people who have not been evacuated but who are affected and live in affected areas. The 300,000 people who are in the army right now, that means there are tens of thousands of families who have not seen their father or only seen him very briefly. Two of my daughters have husbands in the army and they get to see their husbands, you know, very few and far between. So there's definitely a lot of need. It's the biggest mental health crisis in Israel's history because everybody's so traumatized. But if you really look beyond the obvious, you find the needs that people need and the things that people need. So for example, when I spoke to people from Gush Katif, one young woman told me 
that for them, life really started when their mother got access to a washing machine and they could actually do their own laundry. And that gave them a sense of dignity and autonomy and, you know, smelling the smell of her mother's detergent, not somebody else's detergent. It's little things like that, that, you know, in the second week of the war, we went out and bought washing machines for hotels hosting evacuated families. You know, now we're opening a Shalom Bayit cafe for evacuated families because after eight weeks in hotels, in cramped quarters with their kids where they can't get out and they have really no money, we really want to give couples an opportunity to get out, you know, drink a cup of coffee, have a conversation, just go out without having to spend money they don't have or getting heaters, personal heaters for soldiers and tanks because that's not something the army provides. You know, they provide them food, they give them in a tank, but then it's freezing cold in Gaza right now. You know, you can't function when you're cold. So it's really, once again, I think like the theme of my life is looking beyond the obvious to find the internal truth. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be able to help people, you know, in these situations, during the war in Ukraine and now during this war in Israel. It's really impressive the volunteering that you've been doing in both situations, and God willing, they'll each play out favorably, you know, in the very near future. I'm just thinking as someone like you who's so planful and really maps out your steps and is so independent and so driven, do you think about what's next for you when hopefully both of these situations return to some semblance of normalcy and you can go back to whatever you were doing before? What are you focused on? And that's very funny because actually, you know, in Israel, we plan things for after the holidays. So for after the holidays, I was planning on sitting down in our organization and getting the annual plan for 2024. And we have these different talks with different organizations and government agency about raising funds for all these programs we were planning. And then God said, you know, you plan and, you know, I'll laugh. I have my own plans. So for the past two months, we've literally been going from one thing to another and, and like finding another need and another need and another need and raising the funds. I really, you know, it sounds like I do something. I really don't. It's God sort of raining things on us, the needs and the resources, and us just matching those together. I don't know how we did it, but I think in the past eight weeks, we've given out over $500,000 worth of eight, which really, I don't know where it came from. You really can't plan in Israel right now. Nobody's planning more than like a week ahead. And even those plans get changed. But I very much hope that when we come out of this, we'll be in a very different place and uh, we will see what's needed. You know, we still have to plan for 2024 and we will have to address a lot of needs and a lot of issues. Some of them, you know, we sort of are getting an inkling for. And some of them, I think most people don't even realize yet. But, you know, God gives us the questions, and then he also gives us the hints to the answers. It's really all about listening to the reality around you, to, you know, looking a little bit beyond the veneer, and, uh, you know, going along with his plans, because his plans are always much better than ours. Leia, I just love your story, but I really love the fact that you simply took charge of your life, and you directed it where you wanted to go, where you wanted to live how you wanted to live, where you wanted to hold religiously. You really are someone who knew what you wanted, went for it, and got it. It's just so impressive. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard 
or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.